Welcome to the Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hanan. I'm your host, Nabil Hanan, Managing Director at NetSpy. This is a podcast sponsored by NetSpy as a place to share best practices and trends in the world of cybersecurity and vulnerability management. Portions of this interview will appear in print on the NetSpy executive blog. To find out more, go to www.netspy.com slash agent of influence. This is an episode in a series of interviews with industry leaders and security gurus. And it's a pleasure to have with me today a true icon in the cybersecurity industry, Jim Routh. Hi, Jim. Nabil, how are you? I'm fantastic. Thanks for asking. Jim is currently on the boards of Supply Wisdom, Gamma Tech, Accepto, and Zero North, early stage cybersecurity and risk management software companies. He is the former board chair for the HISAC, where he served for five years, and former board member of the FSISAC. He has presented to boards and board committees, technology and governance audit committees for many public and private companies as the CISO or CSO, providing cybersecurity updates and education designed for board members over the past 20 years. Jim has a long history in technology and cybersecurity as a leader and management consultant. He has formerly been a cybersecurity leader for many large companies, including Mass Mutual, CVS Health, Aetna, JPMC, KPMG, DTCC, Amex, and more. While at Aetna, Jim developed one of the most mature converged security programs in the private sector. Prior to that, he served as an IT leader at Amex and a management consultant for over a decade for financial services firms. He is very well recognized as an industry leader in digital transformation and innovation in cybersecurity practices, using data science as a foundation for unconventional cybersecurity. So Jim, why don't we get started? Can you tell us a little bit about the work you're doing on the boards of these early stage cybersecurity and risk management companies? Sure, Nabil. So I get to work with a lot of innovative companies. And I've always believed as a cybersecurity practitioner that innovation in cybersecurity control design comes from companies that are not market leaders. Now, market leading software companies have tremendously talented people. It's not a question of talent. It's most uh, more a question of risk tolerance because large market share leading companies have to ensure that their development resources are developing functionality to meet the broadest part of the market. And that's true for enterprise software. It's certainly true for enterprise security software. The difference in enterprise security software is the broadest part of the market where the most number, largest number of enterprises are typically follow others and are not doing a lot of innovation. And so they're the herd. And so big market leading software companies have to support the needs of the herd and that their shareholders are happy, their investors are happy, the customers are happy, everybody's happy. And, and that model is the way the economics work in uh, the software industry for enterprise software. Enterprise security, I, as a cybersecurity professional, I prefer to work with early stage companies that have some game changing capabilities now, some of those game-changing capabilities don't always make it to the market, but the ones that do are game-changing. They typically introduce friction for threat actors more than uh, legitimate users, as an example. And so I've always been interested as a CISO in working with early-stage companies, and now I get to do it really full-time. And the beauty is that I no longer have responsibility for protecting an enterprise 7 by 24 by 365. 
And I got to tell you, uh, Nabil, that that's a huge burden that's been lifted uh, from me professionally. Work is a lot more fun as a result of it. And I get to see really cool technology uh, in the making. So, uh, so it's all good. That's definitely understandable. One thing that comes to mind that I could use some of your guidance on is if you are, especially for organizations that are trying to be innovative, trying to be something that disrupts the industry and and do something new and different, what are some ways you can encourage innovation? How do you approach the risk threshold and determine when it's time to innovate versus when it's time to maybe follow the leader and build something that's natural and is useful to others and has proven? Also, when taking risks, are there certain things to factor in or certain way of thinking before you decide what risks you take? Yeah, there's a bundle of great questions in what you asked, and I'll try to uh, tackle each one of them. First of all, it's important to have a common definition of innovation. Innovation is sustained failure. (laughs) All right. Now, before you challenge that assumption, let me explain. Innovation comes from adjustments in assumptions that are made and reality or obstacles that are discovered causing pivots. And that typically for an early stage cybersecurity company, that happens when they have design partners. And and certain assumptions of how the software might work or not work are made. And then they discover that in that environment that they have to take an abrupt change and change direction uh, in order to implement. Then they go to the next design partner, they find something else. And so it's a constant iteration of some smaller failures. And the failures have to be acknowledged, understood, and then the lessons learned have to be applied. And that's the pivoting part. And that's the normal cycle for innovation. So innovation, you can talk about anything that has been an innovation in consumer digital technology over the last 30 years. I guarantee you, I guarantee you that it led from failures, small failures and adjustments that were made. Now, one of the things I did in many of the companies that I work for is I got a group of IT architects and IT professionals with the cybersecurity team and uh, upwards of maybe 70 to 100 people and invited them every week to a 90-minute, essentially, web session. This was actually before the pandemic and before we were all working from home anyway. And in the web session, an early-stage company would identify a problem, discuss an architecture solution to that problem, and talk about their experience in implementation uh, of that. And by design, they were all early-stage companies The forum wasn't a sales process, it was an education process. And the rationale behind it is I wanted to teach the IT and cyber professionals that failure is part of the innovation process. And if you can learn from somebody else's failure, that's actually a double benefit because you don't have to incur the failure, you can learn from someone else's. But the learning process and specifically in control design it's in a constant evolution is always changing. And so for us, we have to remember on the enterprise protective side that threat actors always change their tactics. That's what makes them competent as hackers. 
And so they put pressure on the enterprise side to recognize that there's an evolution of capability, and we have to be in tune with that evolution of capability in order to look for those game-changing opportunities and take advantage of them when they happen, even if it means making some bets in some technology solutions that don't pan out, don't scale, or don't solve the fundamental problem. So I would encourage my business stakeholders to think of it as a portfolio management process. In investment portfolio management, your risk appetite changes based on the type of investment that you're making. So if you're investing in an early stage company, you have a high tolerance for risk. If you're investing in a company paying dividends, that's a you know blue chip company that's you know been around for 100 years, that's a very different investment. They're both equities, but they're very, very different, right? And so in the portfolio of cybersecurity capability, having market leaders that are driving solutions or control capabilities in your environment, expect that should not be avoided, that that should be supported. But by the same token, especially around shifting tactics for threat actors, that's when you know every enterprise should have some appetite to look at early stage companies within a certain category or type of technology. Now, I'm going to give you a specific example. We learned from SolarWinds, right? And to be fair, we actually learned from NotPetya in 2017 about the vagaries of uh, software supply chain poisoning. We learned again in, uh, in SolarWinds. So what are the three things that are takeaways for the enterprise for SolarWinds? Well, one is, you know, maybe we ought to use strong passwords for repo management capabilities uh, when we're building, constructing, you know, integrating the software components into the build process. That's, that probably makes sense. We know how to do that. The second is, well, maybe the, you know, the GitHubs and the GitLabs uh, and the Bitbuckets, uh, maybe they all should be in our third-party governance program, and we should have specific controls on that. Okay, we know how to do that. The third lesson learned from SolarWinds and the supply chain poisoning that resulted uh, had a huge impact across the landscape. The third category is something that I'm encouraging enterprises to try out that's relatively new. It's called workload runtime protection. And it's basically some machine learning algorithms bundled in some software components that you put into your build environment or put into your runtime environment, whether it's on-prem or in the cloud, doesn't matter. And what happens is the applications follow a pattern, and this identifies the normal pattern for the applications. And when something happens outside of that pattern, it will either alert the enterprise or the enterprise can choose to block it. And that gives us some real-time protection in our runtime modules, depending on where they're running, against a supply chain poisoning attack. So this technology can actually be used in our repo management, in our build process to protect uh, in runtime. And it's like a default if we are victims of that poisoning that could happen anywhere in the industry, but impacting us and the software that we're using in our enterprise then this gives us a backstop that is not going to disrupt the, uh, the enterprise. And that's an example of where I'm encouraging enterprises. There are seven companies that offer products in the market today that are loosely in this category. There are RASP vendors that have been playing in uh, a similar space for you know, years so we have choices of products and capabilities today. We should be practicing in applying them to our dev environments, maybe in test UA environments, and then eventually our repo environments and our production environments. 
And we should get to the level of uh, evolution where we are using them in preventative mode. But all of this takes innovation, which takes failure. <laughs> so there's some risk associated with that. In this context, I think it's worth the risk because we, we've learned. We don't have a lot of absolute controls in, uh, for supply chain poisoning. So hopefully that's a good, answered most of your questions there. No, that's, that's really helpful. And then when it comes to innovating for some of these smaller and newer vendors and, and you know, software companies that are building solutions to try and address challenges in the market, you, you, know, you talked about RASP, for example, that is a, a relatively up and coming technology compared to you know, other things like SAST and DAST. And then you know, similar to RASP, there is IAST, which is also an instrumented solution that is gaining a lot of popularity today. The question I have for you is, if you are advising a company, how often are you running into a scenario where the company is trying to innovate and solve a problem that maybe another solution has solved but is doing it poorly versus how often are you running into the case where they're truly trying to do something new that hasn't been done before? You know, that's a great question. And I would say it's a kind of a mixed bag that there are a number of companies and approaches to solving the DevSecOps challenge. And the challenge is really development in a cloud-first model is different than development on-prem. And so pretending that it's the same is probably not a good practice for the enterprise. And pretending that the security controls are the same are not a good practice for the enterprise. And so they're in th that space of basically building a pipeline with guardrails and controls in place to develop high-quality software, there are dozens, that maybe more, maybe close to 100 companies offering different approaches, same problem, very different approaches. Some are more developer-friendly. Others are more IT, central IT management friendly, but there's a huge wide range of capabilities to choose from. And I think in that case, the enterprise practitioner, the cybersecurity practitioner has to choose where they want to be on the spectrum and look at solutions within that spectrum and maybe avoid some of the others. Doesn't mean that some of those others didn't, don't work for other enterprises. I just think you have to kind of weigh in and target where you want to be. And I'm my own preference is I want developer-friendly capability because I want my DevOps teams to have security as part of their DNA, as part of what they do. So I'm going to push more towards that side where others may feel more comfortable in the central IT, traditional SDLC on on-prem development and stick with those kinds of uh, capabilities. So you got to make some choices. No, that's helpful. So you touched on this earlier, but I do want to get a better understanding of what you think some of the key differences are between what you're doing today versus what you did in your previous life as a CISO and a CSO and the CISO, more than just the weight being lifted off your shoulders and you feeling a lot better and more relaxed. What are some other key differences you'd say between the two roles? Yeah, so I'm always trying to use the lens of the enterprise practitioner, the cybersecurity practitioner, when I look at opportunities to advise companies or be a member of their board, because that's my expertise. That's kind of what I know. And I've got 20 years of experience that really applies to that lens. However, advisors basically operate in three levels. 
They help on go-to-market strategies and messaging. They help on the product development itself. They help on door opening, you know, uh, introducing either prospective customers or investors to the company. The fourth component is when you're a board member and there's a fiduciary responsibility there. And that kind of varies, depends on what part of the investment life cycle, a seed company, there are some different dynamics versus somebody going for a B or C round uh, investment. And lots of difference in terms of uh, maturity of product capability, go-to-market strategy, et cetera. So that's kind of the fourth dimension that board responsibilities. And I actually operate in all four, four board roles that I have and uh, three, all three for the advisor roles. And it depends on what the company wants. So I let them choose. They've determined the level of uh, interaction and I you know, do my best to use that enterprise protection perspective but influencing, you know, uh, the product development and the, the go-to-market approach and uh, the messaging. So that's kind of my comfort zone. So I, th- I think I'll always think of myself as an enterprise protector. But in fact, I'm learning a lot about the investment management lifecycle of uh, funding early stage companies all the way up to uh, an IPO. And that's kind of fascinating as well. So I'm learning a, a, a few things and, uh, and that's always good, uh, you know, at any time. That's fantastic and very insightful. And I'm sure given your background and experience, you are bringing tremendous value to all these companies that you're working with and advising, regardless of which stage and which phase they're in. So that's that's great to see and, and great to hear. You know, I, I do want to take a step back and, and go into your past a little bit and talk about your program that you built around security at Aetna. Without getting into too much of the details or into the weeds, at a high level, would love to understand what were some of your key approaches, what were some key considerations that went into building and designing a security program that is very mature? I know it doesn't happen overnight. It takes a lot of effort, coordination, nurturing, etc. But for organizations today that say, come to you and ask, hey, we're an enterprise, we want to build one of the world's leading security programs, how would you advise them? And where would you ask them to start? The place to start is actually beginning with the end in mind. So it's getting a common definition of what cyber resilience is for an enterprise. And uh, my definition that has changed over the years, but my definition is an enterprise with the ability to recover quickly from security incidents, apply the learnings from those security incidents to practices going forward and minimize the business impact. That's as good as it gets. And that definition actually applies to the entire enterprise, not to the cybersecurity program exclusively within the enterprise. So that has to be at the board level. It has to be at the senior management level. It has to be built into how IT is delivered and deployed in the enterprise. It has to impact the customers, consumers. It's the entire enterprise and what th- there's a couple of fundamentals that that's based on. So one of the foundation items, which is not necessarily well understood or acknowledged across the industry, but is data science. And I'll be specific about data science fundamentals. Now, when I was at Aetna, the first person I hired was a chief data scientist for cybersecurity. First role when I was at Mass Mutual, it's the first role that I hired. It's absolutely foundational. And there's two parts to it. One is providing better data quality in terms of KPI information. And that's kind of data analytics. And that's, you know, all fine and well and good. But the second is really the game changer. It's using models, behavior models, 
to drive frontline security controls without human intervention in near real time. And it turns out that as we think about AI applied to cybersecurity, if you read a lot of the articles about the convergence of AI and cybersecurity, you'll know that most of the articles are focused on using anomaly detection to find threat actors. My advice to enterprises is stop trying to do that. The degree of difficulty is too high, and the outcome is less certain because of the degree of difficulty. There's actually a much easier way of using data science, and that is to take all of the known identities and users within an enterprise, along with all the known customers, and actually build models, behavioral models, representing what the norms are for all of them and use that as a, fu a fundamental baseline of behavioral attributes, essentially, and across as many attributes as you can, but you got to choose benign attributes because uh, you don't want to house sensitive information. But examples of uh, like the entitlements that I may have in an enterprise and how frequently I use those entitlements, those are, that's a rich source of attribute information that is indicative of a pattern of what is my normal usage. So if I have normal represented as a pattern, I can actually translate that into numbers or math, right? I can turn it into an algorithm, right? Because we learn back, you know, we learn statistics, right? X, Y, access, every single area can be represented by two numbers on a graph, right? So representing an event numerically, it's pretty straightforward. It's easy, right? Now, if we take attribute information and we cluster it into a group, we have a pattern. And we can take then other uh, same attribute information, but in real time, we can compare it to that pattern. And numerically, we can create a deviation score. Now, the deviation score gives us a number, and on the range of numbers of the deviation score, we can establish a threshold. Let's just say arbitrarily, a 70 and above, I want a specific treatment for any behavioral deviation score that's 70 and above. And we can automate that because it's numbers driven into a workflow that provides a treatment. And as long as the data is streaming, we have a new real-time opportunity to do this in milliseconds, and there's no human intervention that's required. It just says the deviation score says 70, and so that treatment is going to be aligned with anything 70 and above. If it's 60 to 70, maybe there's another treatment, right? And so by being able to identify thresholds in the deviation score, we can align it with actual treatments. Now, everything I've described falls into a category of control design that does not rely on the human with context to apply context to an event or series of events and then take action. And of course, many of our cybersecurity tools are designed to feed to a SOC analyst who applies context and then makes a decision on the action. In this case, we're eliminating that. And instead, the SOC analyst can step back and look across thousands of transactions and maybe change the threshold scores based on the wide range of data that they're looking at. Again, everything I've described are basic fundamental data science principles and practices that are relatively straightforward to do. They don't require a high degree of difficulty.
And it turns out that there are thousands of use cases within an enterprise, both from a physical security standpoint and a cyber security standpoint, to do this. And data science is foundational to building a program that's based on the resiliency definition that we talked about. So when it comes to creating the math that goes around, you know, whether it be using machine learning or AI or whatever models you're using to define what the norm is or what normal behavior needs to look like, I know that that has its own unique challenges, but data science obviously has methodologies and, and ways to solve those and address those. I'm curious to understand, were there any interesting scenarios you ran into where maybe it wasn't quite as straightforward to define what normal behavior is? And maybe that required more attention or more thought. And if you could share maybe a few examples, if there are any. So the first thing that we realized is the attributes themselves, that we didn't want to be in a position where we just store that data, number one. And number two, we didn't want that data to be sensitive in any way. So, for example, if I checked your browser history every time you logged into a website, that would be stepping over that line of creepiness for the enterprise, and you wouldn't appreciate that, nor should you, and the enterprise should ignore that attribute simply because it's, got, it's sensitive, right, and it's uh, personal. And so we chose attributes that were benign. So how you swipe on your phone, you know, would be an example of an attribute that actually is a pretty good indicator of you versus someone else. Pretty easy to measure, but it's relatively benign. So at Aetna, we built a, a passwordless option that was continuous behavioral-based uh, authentication. CVS is now has, you know, 20 million customers using it in production. And what we did is we chose benign attributes. And the way we did it, we made a list of all the attributes available on a mobile device and, and the web through your browser. And we showed it to the chief privacy officer and her team. We basically said, we want you to tell us what's benign. And, and they gave us the things that were most benign. And we said, okay, we're going to engineer this solution based on those benign attributes. The second thing we did is we didn't store the attribute information. We hashed it. And so the risk engine itself, if it got hacked, you wouldn't see any information because it'd be number strings and you couldn't make sense of it. And then you couldn't attribute it back to anybody else. So those were an example of where we took some privacy principles, if you will, and turned them into design principles for the technology that we ultimately developed. And then I think we ended up uh, originally about 60 attributes that we could use. And then when I say use, we have patterns for each attribute. We have the attribute data hitting the patterns. We have the deviation score from each attribute mapping to the pattern. And then we aggregate into a single deviation score send that in real time to the app, and the app decides how much access to provide in real time as the consumer's using the either web app or mobile app or both. And we actually built uh, something for a voice channel to be very similar as well. So what we're doing is hedging our bets a little bit in that we're using multiple attributes, we're aggregating into a single score. As long as you have multiple attributes, if one attribute, what's an example? Well, your GPS is going to change if you work from home versus going in the office. And the time that you are active in terms of your, your work is also changing, right? 
So those are examples of where we may weight those attributes lower during pandemic work from home impact. And when we make a transition back to the work uh, in the office environment, we may say, you know what, geolocation is not as important. So we're going to drop the weighting down and that becomes less of a factor. And some of the other attributes become more important. And these are the adjustments that we're continually doing in real time along the way. In the meantime, the end user doesn't have to remember a user ID, doesn't have to remember a password, doesn't need a one-time password. So all of the friction has been removed from their experience. There's no password reset process because there's no password, right? So that's lower operating cost. And there's no account takeover because this can't be defeated by threat actors. So you get a trifecta of business benefit as a result of it. All of it is based on the data science fundamentals that, uh, that drive it. And again, the degree of difficulty, what I described, is not high. There are lots of other things in AI, deep learning, specifically in neural networks, that are hard, that have a high degree of difficulty. Everything I've described is, is really not as hard. It's pretty basic. No, that's really insightful. I'm going to dig a little bit deeper into some of those with some other uh, contacts that we have in the industry and see what their thoughts are. But that's very, very useful. And you've given me a lot to think about. You know, I really like that. So Jim, this might be a, a little bit of a harder question, but it shouldn't really be. If you had to distill down some major themes of what you observed and learned over the past two to three decades that you've been in the industry, how would you do that being a leader in the space? Yeah, that's fascinating. When I started 20 years ago in cybersecurity, there was a one-size-fits-all model for industry standard practices for cybersecurity for the enterprise. And there was a validation process where you choose a risk framework, you'd align your IT management controls with the control objectives in the risk framework, and then you get a third party to come in and do an attestation on how effective your controls are against that framework. And if you lined up well with that framework, you got a you know, high rating in terms of the maturity of the control environment for the enterprise. Now, every enterprise could use the same risk framework and essentially the same set of practices and same set of controls. That indicates or it's based on the assumption that there's a one-size-fits-all model for enterprises enterprises large, enterprises medium, enterprises small, enterprises in banking, enterprises in asset management, enterprises in healthcare. It's all one, one size fits all model. And if we look at best practices as they relate to NIST 853 as an example, ISO 27001 as another example, and we understand the best practices, those are really helpful, useful, practical, and vital tools for an enterprise. What's different today than 20 years ago is threat actor activity has driven outside of the realm of these uh, risk frameworks. So if you think about it, the stakeholders in applying an industry standard model were all firmly established. The CEO, the CFO, the CIO, the board, the auditor, the external auditor, the regulator, the third party governance team. Everybody bought into this notion of one-size-fits-all to a specific risk framework, but the threat actor was the one stakeholder <laughs> that didn't buy in, constantly changed the evolved their techniques, shared a lot of information, used other networking of criminal syndicates to improve their capabilities, and are constantly changing and evolving. And the enterprise has to deal with that. 
And that doesn't mean that risk frameworks are obsolete. Quite the opposite. They're still foundational. They're just not enough. You need something more, and you need the ability to actually respond to the incidents of the day, learn from that, apply those lessons in in terms of improved practices going forward, and do that in a continuous way. And there's also a recognition that Enterprise A may have a different risk profile and attack surface than Enterprise B, even if they're in the same industry. And so what the recipe for success for enterprise A versus enterprise B are different. And so I've learned to look at the top cyber risks for the enterprise that I'm part of and drive the investment decisions in allocation of resources based on what those risks are. And I recognize right up front that just because they're in the same industry doesn't mean that risk, that attack surface is exactly the same. Every organization is different. How they make decisions are different. The cultural norms and behaviors, that all factors into what the attack surface is. The data that's managed factors into the attack surface. There isn't a one-size-fits-all model. My advice to cybersecurity professionals today is embrace those cyber risk frameworks. They're excellent, and they're a source of wonderful practices. They're not enough by themselves. You need more than that. Yeah, they're just a baseline, right? Ultimately, you have to adapt to what your organizational needs are, business objectives, risk threshold, investment requirements, etc. So no, that's great. That's very helpful. What do you think about the pandemic and how that has influenced a lot of the digital transformation and the way people think about not just technology and adoption of things like cloud, but also how you think it has influenced people's visibility and exposure to attacks and threats? I think, um, number one, when we started last March and started to get ready for the you know, work from home model, all of us in cybersecurity and IT for that matter, were really uncertain as to whether the IT infrastructure would hold up with everybody moving to video conferencing and immersing themselves in that every, you know, all day long and obviously doing all of that from home in the last mile. So the concern was the infrastructure. Now, it turns out that that wasn't a valid concern because the infrastructure actually held up pretty well. But what we did learn, which we didn't anticipate, is the human factor didn't hold up so well. What does that mean? It means that many of us, when we made the transition, we had the commute time. And if the commute time was an hour and a half a day, you then allocated that commute time to doing more meetings, right? And more Zoom meetings, right? Or whatever you're using for your, uh, you know, your video conferencing. And you're doing that back to back to back, you know, throughout the whole day. So you're investing more time as a way of compensating. Now, the problem with that, and by the way, we were all doing that to some degree, but the problem with that, it's not a sustainable model. And so over time, the human part of it would fail. So we had to, as leaders, and this is true for cybersecurity, it's true for all functions, We had to actually teach people how to prioritize their health. I know that sounds crazy, but we did. We had to say, look, all right, your number one responsibility is for your own health. And if you can't go to the gym and you decide you're going to walk or run and that's how you're going to get your cardiovascular exercise and you discover that walking at seven in the morning is better than walking at seven at night, then you're going to walk at seven in the morning. And that eight o'clock meeting that you have, you know, uh, in your past model, you're going to jettison that because you're not going to make it in time. So you're going to run at seven 
and maybe you don't start till 9.30 or whatever, right? So the first thing is make your schedule adjustments to enable you to be healthy, whatever it is you have to do to be healthy, number one. Second is you have dependents. Those dependents have different needs. In a work-from-home model where kids are being schooled from home, they need your help. And look, the teacher's not looking at them and controlling their behavior you know, throughout the day. And so they're on your watch. And so you have to build that into your work schedule where you didn't before. And if your spouse has part of the burden, you've got to take up part of the burden. So those two things are foundational and have to be done first. The third is that you need flexibility in allowing your work schedule to allow for the first two things. And we as leaders have to say it's okay to do that. And so if, you know, someone says, I'm going to take from noon to two and I'm going to be, it's going to be family time or, you know, learning time, distance, whatever it is, and I'm not going to have any meetings during then, that's okay. And we need, as leaders, we need to say, no problem. Don't feel guilty about it. That's exactly what you should do. And so that, I think, was something we didn't anticipate, the human dimension of this. And I think all of us recognizing that, uh, you know, there's a behavioral health implication to enforcement of the work from home model and the pandemic constraints. And we all are dealing with that at some level. Some people are struggling with that. We have to be more tolerant of that and supportive of that as leaders. All of these things. So I would say that the premium that it's, that the pandemic has created is on leadership. And that's true for everybody. certainly true for cybersecurity professionals. No, that's very true. So Jim, I like to end things talking about non-work-related stuff. And I know you have a new hobby you picked up recently. I did. So can you tell us a little bit more about pickleball and, and why you enjoy it so much? Sure. I winter in uh, Naples, Florida. Naples, Florida is actually uh, where the world championships of pickleball take place this week, as a matter of fact. And of course, I knew none of this prior to uh, coming down to Naples. But pickleball is a game that you play with a uh, plastic wiffle ball. It's on a tennis court, but the net's a little bit lower and the court is much, much smaller and it's divided up a little bit differently. And it's a, typically a game played with doubles. I play it with my wife and we'll play, you know, other uh, mixed doubles all the time. And it's a very social game. It's very easy to interact and meet people. It's kind of addictive in that it's just fun. It's a, it's a fun game. It's relatively easy to learn over time. So I've adjusted my schedule. So I used to, I was an early person. So I would get up, you know, 5.30, 6 and do my uh, workout. And by 7, 7.30, I'd be at work every day. That was my norm. If I was commuting, I'd factor that into the equation and, you know, just get up earlier. And uh, now what I do is uh, I play pickleball every morning. And I don't start my meetings until 10, maybe 10.30 every day, simply because I'm, I want to allocate that time for, uh, for the pickleball time with my wife. So it's a lot of fun. You can actually see it on YouTube if you do pickleball YouTube, and it'll show you the results of the world championships that are going on uh, this week in Naples. A lot of fun, and it's something you can play when you're older like me. Awesome. Well, Jim, I hope that we can actually play maybe when you're back in Massachusetts. You're not too far from me. So maybe we'll find the time to play and you can show me the ropes. But, you know, thank you so much for your time and, and sharing your knowledge with us. It's always a pleasure chatting with you. I've always loved working with you in the past and hoping for this pandemic to, to get under control so we can do more things in person. Nabil, sounds great. Thank you so much, Jim. Take care. Have a great day. 
This has been an Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hanan. Portions of this interview can be found in print on the NetSpy Executive blog. And please subscribe for future episodes of Agent of Influence at www.netspy.com slash agent of influence.